0: Hello and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. In the book of John, chapter 12, and verse 20, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Now these were... Of course, Greek Jews, they were Jews, but they were from Greece. So there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was a bedside of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. They found Philip, and they said, We want to see Jesus. And Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip together, they went to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, there's some Jews here, some Jews from Greek, Greece, they've come a far way, they want to see you. And Jesus answered them saying, this is his answer. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified, and I will glorify it again. Let's pause pause here a little bit before we go further. Now, there was a feast in Jerusalem, and these Greeks came, and they wanted to see Jesus, so they said to Philip that, Uh, You know, we want to see Jesus. You are his disciples. Can you give us an introduction? And Philip came to Andrew, said there's some people who want to see Jesus. And, uh, you know, it it reminds me a lot of how sometimes we say in meetings, oh, I want to see Jesus. You know, I want to experience Jesus. And it's perfectly legitimate. We want to see Jesus. I remember when I first got saved and the charismatic movement came, we used to sing a song, open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus, you know. Reach out and touch him. Tell him that I love him. You know, we all want to see Jesus. And so Jesus, uh, you know, and they go to Jesus and say, there's the Greeks who want to see you. And the answer that Jesus gave was really unusual. He said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and it die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He who loves his life shall lose it. And who hates his life, he who hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. Now. There are many different facets to this answer. You, this answer, you can read a lot of things into what Jesus is saying. But the first thing is that he, you know, he, the way he's talking, he's talking about death. He's really talking about his impeding death. This is not a lighthearted Jesus. This is Jesus, and he said, my soul is troubled. Because he was going through this, in his humanity, he was going through this, uh, Turmoil within himself because this thing happened towards the end of his three and a half years of ministry, and Jesus knew that the time was coming for him to die upon the cross, and he was mulling his the whole thing about I'm going to die and what it would cost him to die upon the cross and to you know. That he understood it was absolutely necessary because he came as the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb. Because they said, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the lamb is a sacrificial lamb. So he knew that he came to be offered up as a sacrifice. And now that time had come. And so we see him later on. At the garden of Gethsemane when he he prayed because he suddenly you know it dawned on him what it would cost him to take the sins of mankind upon himself and the biggest price he would have to pay was separation from the father now Jesus was uh, you know he is God and he is without beginning without end he's the eternal one and he and the father It's not that they were side by side because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are actually one. And for him to be, he understood what it would cost him was to be rejected by the Father, to be separated from the Father. And that is something, it's astounding to think that here is Jesus who knows everything, but there is one thing he does not know is what it is like to be separated and rejected from his Father. So that is why at the garden when he prayed, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. In other words, Lord, if there's, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, let us do it that way. But he knew this was it. So his instinct of self-survival, self-preservation, that was overshadowed by his love for us. He loved us more than he loved himself. And that is why, you know, in in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says Jesus, in order to obtain the joy that was set before him, endured the pain of the cross. The joy that was set before him was, I could see that Jesus saw a vision of all mankind burning in the flames of hell because of the sins of man. But then he had a vision of mankind standing dressed in white robes before the throne of God, worshipping God. And in order to obtain that joy, the joy of seeing a blood-washed humanity before the throne of God, the price he he had to pay was upon the cross. So in order to obtain that joy, he endured the pain and the suffering of the cross. He knew that he had to do it. So he's going through this turmoil. He's soon going to die. He's going to be separated from his father. So that's one one side of it. He's in that situation. Ma, but these men want to see him. So, but then there's a second layer in all this. And that is, he understood that except a corn of wheat, to the ground and die. It abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He knew that he was that corn of wheat who would fall to the ground and die and be buried. But from that sacrifice would rise a nation, a new kingdom hallelujah but then comes the third part and that's for you and me he said you want to see me if you want to see me come with me and go with me where I'm going you want to serve me come with me if you look at the Apostles of Jesus other than Judas the eleven Apostles none of them died a natural death they all died terrible deaths they were all executed Peter was executed upside down he was crucified upside down because they wanted to crucify him he said I'm not worthy to die like my master so they crucified him upside down Some were beheaded Paul was beheaded they were all killed now I want you to understand this I don't want you to frighten you or uh, But you know, let me me try to explain something. Where I was born, where I grew up, if you become a Christian, you are a Muslim and you become a Christian, you know they're going to kill you. So when I got saved, on the third day after I got saved, I saw a Bible for the first time in my life. And so I met this American guy and I told him, he lives in Augusta, Georgia. I've kind of reconnected with him, found him after all these years. So this is like 41 years ago. So I said to him, you know, I gave my life to Jesus. So he said, so you gave your life to Jesus? I said, yes. He said, do you know the conditions of following Jesus? I said, I didn't know there were conditions. He said, there are. Sit down, I'll tell you. So I sat on a chair right next to him. And he pulled out, he had a little shoulder bag, and he pulled out a little book like this about this size. It was bound in leather. It was burgundy color, maroon. And he says, do you know what this book is? I said, no, sir. He said, this is a Bible. I'd never seen a Bible with my eyes. I was 21 years of age. I'd never seen a Bible. He said, this is a Bible. And he said, take it. And now. As a Muslim, I believe that the Bible was a holy book, and we are taught to respect the holy books. We, we, we respect the holy books so much that the Quran and the Bible, and uh, uh, we don't um, touch them unless your hands are washed. And when they're kept in a the house, they're always kept at a higher level above your head on a bookshelf, and you never turn your back to. A Bible or a Quran and walk away because disrespectful to turn your back to it. You 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 back away from it. You'd never sit with your feet pointing towards, you know, the soles of your feet pointing towards a Quran or a Bible. That's disrespectful. And so this man is now giving me a Bible to hold. I said, Sir, my hands are not washed. He says, Don't worry, just take it. So I remember my hands were trembling, and I took the the Bible and he opened it to a certain page. And that was the first time I was ever looking at the inside of a Bible. And he said, now, read read these verses. It was in King James, you know, thee and thou. I said, this is difficult. He said, no, read it three times. Then you'll understand it. And this is what it said. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. So he made me... Uh, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what shall he give in exchange for his soul? So he made made me read it three times. So he said, do you see the conditions for following Jesus? I said, yeah, it says I have to deny myself. He said, are you willing to do it? I said, sir, this is the 13th of, uh, this was 13, 14, 15, 16th of December. 1970, I got saved on the 13th and this was the, I think, 15th or 16th of December 1975. I said, four years ago, in 1971, in December, I went to war. I was a 17-year-old kid and I went to war. And I went to jihad with a willingness to die because I know that then my life on earth will be over and I'll go to heaven now Muslims when they bury their dead they don't bury them in a box in a casket but they bury them in a shroud in a white shroud so if you are one of those who is ready to lay down your life for Allah and to die you go to battle carrying your own burial shroud in your backpack so I had my burial shroud in which I'd be buried I would I had in my backpack then what you do you you tear off a strip of the top end of the shroud, about an inch wide. And then you wear it on your, you, you you kind of tie it, knot it around your head like a strip around your head. And you wear your steel helmet, your helmet on top of that. So when you wear that, that's a sign that I'm wearing my shroud and I'm ready to die. I said, I went to battle wearing that thing on my head, ready to die. So, if you're asking me whether I'm ready to deny myself, yes. If I could die for Muhammad, I can die for Jesus. Because I have nothing to live for anyway. Then he said, okay, the second condition is take up your cross daily. Do you know what it means? I said, sir, I have no idea. He said, well... Jesus took up that cross once and that was when he was going to his place of execution this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is asking us to do more than what he himself did he asked he's telling us that if we want to follow him we want to take up we should take up our cross every single day then he said And this is what he said, I'll never forget that, and I think of those words often. If you're not willing to die for him, you're not fit to live for him. That is the cost of discipleship. And, you know, when you live in those countries, it comes out as very black and white, life or death, hot or cold, heaven or hell. You're either on fire for God or you perish. So I was on the streets after that preaching. Then one morning they told me, the police is coming to arrest you. And the four of us Muslim converts, they told us in the morning, the other three guys, they took their stuff and they ran. They went back. They didn't want to go to prison and they went to, they all backslid. I met one of them later. He was back in Islam. I I met him. I said, hey, man, he said, no, no, don't talk to me about my past. That's finished, man. I'm a Muslim now. And so my leader, he was uh, he said to me, he was a guy from Switzerland, he said, what about you? I said, where shall I go? Because if I go, I don't want to lose my portion in the book of life. I know this much, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. So I would rather go to prison with him then be without him outside. What I'm trying to tell you is that the call to discipleship is a call to lay down our lives and to follow Jesus. Where I grew up, it becomes that way. There's such a confrontation between darkness and light and you have to be willing to die for the gospel to, to prove you're serious, you mean business with God. Right? In America, nobody pushes us into that corner. We are not forced to do that. But we have to do it ourselves and develop an attitude that I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart and I'm going to take up my cross and follow me. Even though no one is threatening to kill you or execute you or take your life or imprison you, it's something you have to impose upon yourself. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart you may not you may never see the inside of a prison like I had to I was in prison for almost a year you may never have to do that but you should be thankful that you don't have to do that but you can still follow Jesus and count yourself crucified with Christ and alive in him that's why Paul says we should count ourselves crucified and risen together with him but we cannot count ourselves risen with him unless we first count ourselves crucified with him there has to be that death to the self-life unfortunately because there's no persecution because it's not tough to be a Christian a lot of people choose to live on the fringes I'm a Christian but I serve God by by convenience but we don't serve God by convenience. We serve God by conviction. I have decided to follow Jesus. And thank God I don't live in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia where they would cut my head off for becoming a Christian. Thank God I live in the United States of America. But I serve God because of my conviction. I do it because it's the right thing to do. I go to church because it's the right thing to do to worship God. I read my Bible. I pray in tongues. I I live a sacrificial life. I spend time on my knees. I pray. I do these things because of my convictions for me I had to live that way to stay alive because it was either burn or burn be on fire for God or go to hell it was one way or the other there was no there was no we didn't have that option that option of luxury kind of that in-between place where I can say I'm safe but I can still relax and kick back I didn't have that it was either one or the other and when is that kind of situation? You are forced into a corner. You are forced to make a choice. And thank God that I decided to follow Jesus, even though it was tough and not, was not like my other three friends who ran off. And as I look back today, I often think of the price I had to pay. And I realize it wasn't really a price, it was the best investment I ever made in my life. Do you understand? It wasn't really a price. What seemed to be a price then, today you think was the smartest investment I ever made in my life. Hallelujah. Are you with me? That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to follow me, there's no halfway thing. He said, You want to see me? Come with me where I'm going. And by the way, I'm going to die. Because except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if you, In other words, if you're not willing to die, you'll be lonely. You'll be alone. But if you want to see me, come to the cross with me. Die with me. Because if any man will serve me, he will go where I'm going. If I want to serve Jesus, I'll follow Jesus. I'll follow him to the cross. I'll die at the cross with him. But if I die at the cross with him, I will also rise together with him. I will also ascend with him to heaven. And I will also sit at the right hand of the Father with him. Hallelujah. Amen. So that's why we talk about the crucified life, the sacrificed life. Amen. Are you with me? So there's many facets in this, in this that Jesus is talking about. And this is all because he was in that situation. He was mulling his death. He wasn't exactly in a laughing, jocular mood. You know, he was in a, in, a, in, in a very somber mood because of what he was going to go through. But let's go back to this. Verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's talking about glory. Normally when we talk about the glory of God, We talk about, the. we think of the Holy Spirit, glory cloud. You know, I I feel the glory of God. This has to do with, there's a note of victory. We think of the glory of God as the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God. But here he's talking about another glory. He's talking about the glory of his cross. He died a very bloody and gory and painful death upon the cross. It was not a pretty sight, but somehow he's referring to his death, his bloody, painful, gory death as being something glorious. Because what he said, the hour is come that the Son of Man be glorified. Then... Verse 27, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour that may save me from this kind of death. He said, no, but for this cause I have come to this hour. Then he said, Father, glorify your name. Be glorified through my death. And I want to share a little thought here about martyrdom. Sometimes we think that martyrdom is about dying. There's more to martyrdom than dying. The word martyr actually means a witness. A martyr is not somebody who dies, but a martyr is someone who dies in such a way that his death is a witness of Christ. When Stephen died, it was not his death, but it was the way he died. It was the way he died. It was a witness. It was a testimony. Can you imagine when those rocks came raining at him, Stephen stood up. He said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, who normally is seated at the right hand of the Father, stood up from his throne to receive Stephen. And he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And those are, that's the last thing he said. And there was a man there, standing there. He was taking care of everybody's coats that they had taken off to stone Stephen. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul saw the way Stephen died. And that had a profound impact on him. How do I know that? Because if you read the, the, the message that Stephen preached at that last hour, then you then you read the the times that Paul stood and defended the gospel and gave his testimony before King Agrippa and before the Jews and in other places. It's interesting how the way Paul spoke and how he preached the gospel in those situations. It was exactly a copy of how Stephen preached the gospel at his death. So you can say that, that Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul was the fruit of the seed that Stephen became when he died. So in that way, Stephen was a martyr because his death was a was a was a testimony, it was a witness. Something came out of him. So in God, even when we talk about laying down your life or dying for Christ something greater will always come out of it that's the that's the glory of the gospel that's the glory of the cross of Jesus it's never a defeat but there's always a victory God will always gain glory out of it that's what Jesus is talking about the son of man should be glorified and he said glorify Thy name and the and and the father said he says I have glorified it and it will and I will glorify it again And verse 29, the people therefore that stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. And this is Jesus. Verse 30, Jesus answered, said, this voice came not because of me but for your sakes. And this is what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I, I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. This is said signifying what death he should die. Here Jesus tells us why his death on the cross was glorious. Because he tells us what will happen when I die upon the cross. This is what is going to happen. And I put these things together. The first thing he said, he says, now is the judgment of this world. That means upon the cross, The world will be judged for its sins. Upon the cross, the world will be judged for its sins. The sins of mankind will be judged upon the cross. When Jesus was upon the cross, the judgment of God fell upon him for the sins of mankind. Now, we talk a lot about judgment. Anytime, you know, there's a natural catastrophe, we say, oh, God's judgment. You remember when Hurricane Katrina came, there were people prophesying, it's God's judgment. You know, anything bad happens is God's judgment. Listen, sin has already been judged. The era we are living in now is not the era of God's judgment. We are living in the era of the gospel. This is the time when God is calling all mankind to be saved. He's offering them forgiveness he's offering that you know his salvation and we are living in that window and it's up to us the church to make sure that the world hears that God is not out to judge you he's not out to get you he's not out to kill you he wants to save you Jesus has died for you he paid the price for you and you this is your opportunity we have this window right now this is the time of God's mercy this is the time of salvation. This is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today the gifts of God freely abound. And that is the primary task of the church and of the believer to make sure that people will know that people do know that this door is open for them. Now, there will come a judgment when we will all stand before the judgment throne of Christ. We will Mankind will be judged before the judgment throne of Christ. And there the judgment will be on the basis of uh, whether you accepted Christ or you rejected him. Do you understand what I'm saying? No. But then a part of that is that every man's work will be tried through fire. That's going to happen to all of us. Everything I did in the flesh would be burnt to ashes. And there's many of us who will be standing with a lot of ashes around our feet. So important, you know. So I remember there's this, this uh, um, missionary from Lancaster where I live. So he visited an old classmate of his. And uh, he was home from the field. And uh, and, and this guy, this this, this is this a very wealthy man. So whenever he was around this missionary, he felt guilty. Because he had the calling of God in his life. But he didn't obey God. Because he was concern, concerned about how will I survive, about money, you know. So he decided not to obey God. And just, you know, went into business and he did well. So whenever this guy would come around, he'd feel guilty because they grew up together in church together and he obeyed God and he went through hardships but went on the field. So uh, this guy came to this. This is a true story because... You know, so so he he's showing me and he, everything he's showing. He said, well, this is my new house. You know, see how God has blessed me. Everything he said, see how God has blessed me. And see, God gave me this car. God blessed me. And when he had given him the tour, shown him everything, my friend, the missionary, he said, he says, brother, you've done much better than me. When we go to heaven, even your pile of ashes will be bigger than mine. <laughs> so... But that that is also going to happen you know I mean if we build of wood hay or stubble it will be an ashes but if we build solid and build on the rock it's going to stand Amen? amen so it's also important how we build. but anyway but he says that now is the judgment of this world that means when Jesus died upon the cross the sins of the world were judged in Jesus so you should remember that you who are sitting here you who are born again, just remember, God does not go around holding a grudge against you. That he doesn't want to heal you because of something you did 20 years ago. That is a lie of the devil. If there, you know, sometimes you wonder why God, it's not God. It's that thing in your head sitting in your, it, 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 it has tied a knot, you know, it has tied itself into your brain and that is sitting there, that little thing, sitting in your head that is the problem not God you are forgiven you have been made righteous amen now is the judgment of this world it means that the world the world has been judged for its sins in Jesus secondly now shall the prince of this world be cast out that means the devil is defeated and it says here in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, I will read it to you, you can listen. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And it means the cross. That means upon the cross, Jesus won a total and decisive victory over all the principalities and powers of the enemy and he made a show of them openly and he triumphed over the devil in other words the devil has been defeated the devil Jesus said upon the cross when I die upon the cross the devil shall be cast out and defeated and the word spoilt and means to disarm the devil has been disarmed amen Jesus defeated the devil and won a total victory over him. And that is very important for us to carry us, you know, in our consciousness that Satan has been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. He has been dealt with once and for all. You know, uh, when, you, when I'm in, especially in India, and, uh, and often in Africa, we, we often deal with demon-possessed people. And, uh, and, and often it's that thing, you know, they, they, they don't want to go. They want to, and actually, in a sense, you feel like they're trying to test you how much you really know. And sometimes they talk to you. Often they don't talk to you, they just scream, but sometimes they talk. So I remember the first time I ever cast the devil out of this woman. Uh, uh, that was the first time ever. I was in India, my first trip to India. And uh, I was very antsy about what's going to happen. And this, after, at the end of the meeting, this woman comes up. And she comes with her husband. And they were well-dressed, you know, well-to-do people, educated. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, in front of all these people, she said, she said you know, I, every night when I go to bed, I feel like there's this thing that's attacking me. Okay. So I had no idea what this was, what I was going to do. I knew it had something to do with the devil. So I remember somebody had once said that the eyes are the window of the soul. I don't know where I had read it or where I had heard it, whether it was in the Bible or not, but I remember hearing it, the eyes are the window of the soul. So I thought, okay, so whatever is in there, I want to see what it is. So I said, can you open your eyes and just stare at me? (laughs) So she said, like, this. I said, open wider and keep them open. So I was looking into her eyes because her eyes are the window of her soul. And I wanted to see what was in there. So I was, I was looking into her. We were eyeballing one another. And I was eyeballing her. And I said, ba ba The moment I said that, her eyeballs rolled back. The pupils disappeared. And you see those whites of her eyes. And I looked, I'd never seen anyone do that feat before. Then her tongue came out, and the tip of her tongue was moving like this, and it came to her chin. And then she began to hiss like a snake when she began to hiss like a snake, my knees began to have fellowship. You know, I was like, duh, 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 duh. my teeth were going like, it was hot summer. You know, I, I said, Christopher, Alam, just compose yourself, you know. So, so I, and, then, and then I said, uh, 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 come out in Jesus' name. And a man's voice said from inside, we are not coming out. We are the gods of this family. You know, the Hindus have all these gods. We are the gods that this family worships. I said, I don't care who you are. Come out in Jesus' name. Then she fell on the ground and still like that, with eyeballs rolled back, tongue sticking out, and the husband freaked out. He had never seen his wife do that before. And so she's now moving like a snake, riding like a snake. I said, come out. And then she said, I'll never forget this. She said, okay, okay, give me a chicken and I'll come out. I said, if I had a chicken, I would fry it and eat it myself. I would not give you a chicken. I don't have a chicken, but you come out in the name of Jesus. (laughs) And then she said, if you're not giving me a chicken, I'm not coming out. And you kept on hissing. And I said, what do you do then? Then the devil is saying, I'm not coming out. So I shouted in the name of Jesus, come out! A couple of times, nothing happened. And suddenly I got the key. I thought this devil is trying to make a fool of me. He thinks I don't know. So suddenly I got a revelation. I said, devil, I know what my Lord Jesus did to you. I know that when he was upon that cross, he defeated you. He disarmed you. He spoiled you. He destroyed your power. He went down to Hades and he defeated your boss, Lucifer. And because of that, you are subject to me and you have to obey me. You cannot talk back to me. And in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you come out right now. And she screamed and the devils came out and she was okay. Sometimes... You have to remind the devil of what Jesus has done to him upon the cross at Calvary amen Amen. Amen. we have to he knows it but he's just testing us to see if we know it and we always we always go into these things knowing that we are facing an enemy who has been soundly totally completely defeated Jesus has defeated the devil that's why he said you shall tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall ever hurt you nothing shall ever hurt you nothing you are of god little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world the greater one lives in us and that is why we have no fear you know i was many many years ago doing the charismatic revival we were We had an interdenomination conference and on the last night they wanted to do a healing service. So, you know, they put these chairs and like two feet apart. And so uh, we had the Pentecostals here and the Baptists here and the Salvation Army here and the Lutherans here, two preachers from each denomination and the sick would come sit on the chair and we would lay hands on them. And so I noticed the Salvation Army. What they did, they put a Bible on the guy's head and they laid hands on the Bible. So I asked the Salvation Army pastor, what is this? He said, well, you see, if the person has devils and the devil wants to jump on you when you're casting them out, the Bible acts like an insulation, you know. <laughs> he says, when the devil wants to come, he hits the Bible, he goes right back because he cannot pass through the Bible to get at you. And, you know, and people have people have this fear of the devil. But we don't fear the devil because we know that the devil has been defeated. So he says, now... Is the judgment of this world so that's why the cross of Jesus was so glorious because upon the cross Jesus bore the sins of all mankind and upon the cross he defeated the devil he disarmed the powers and principalities against us the third thing is also in Colossians 2 blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross he took the the law of Moses out of the way Jesus dealt with the law of Moses. The law of Moses was nailed to the cross. Now, the Jews' relationship with the law of Moses is very different to our relationship with the law of Moses. For the Jews, the law of Moses was their means of salvation. For us, because of Jesus, the law of Moses is no longer our means of salvation, but it is how do you say it is still our reference point? Because there's a lot of things that in that the New Testament doesn't really tell you whether it is right or wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we have the law of Moses to refer to, and the law of Moses will tell you what is right and wrong. And that is why Jesus said, "I uphold the law." Although He fulfilled the law, the law of God still stands. And it stands as a reference point to us. So if there's ever any discussion, like people say, well, how can you say homosexuality is wrong? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yes, he never did. But the law of Moses says it's wrong. And Jesus said, I uphold the law of Moses. So if the law of Moses said it, and Jesus upheld the law, so it is by default it is wrong so the law of Moses is no longer a means of salvation It's no longer a means of salvation uh, of sanctification but it still shows us God's righteous standards of what is right and wrong amen so we don't fulfill to uh, we, we don't live to fulfill the law of Moses but what we do is we live to fulfill the royal law of love Which means if you Jesus said, "If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and you love your neighbor as yourself, in this you fulfill the law of God." Amen. If you love God with all your heart, you love people with all your heart, you will not sin against God. That's all God requires of us. So, the law of Moses, we cannot say, well, it's not for us today. In in a sense it is not for us today because we don't have to live after according to the law of Moses to please God but it is for us today because we always refer to that when it comes to what is right and wrong do you understand what I'm saying so the law in the lives of the Jews the Israelites the law played an active role in our lives it pay it plays a more passive role in that it is there for something for us to refer to that's why it's important we also study the books of the Old Testament so we understand what what you know about the righteous standards of God about the holiness of God because if you ignore the Old Testament and you only you know study the New Testament that's why you know these days a lot of young people they don't read the Bible anymore they don't even read the New Testament so a lot of people say things there's so much of nonsense out there and I'm telling you people will people just know two things on the Bible these days firstly that God loves everybody secondly we should not judge anybody So if you say something is wrong, oh, you're being judgmental. You're not walking in love. That's why we have the law. You want to know what is right and wrong? Go to the law of Moses. He'll tell you. Amen? So, but the law was nailed to the cross. Because the law of God is what the devil uses to accuse us. He says he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The fourth thing, is that upon the cross, Jesus bore our diseases and carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement was of our pieces upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. So upon the cross, Jesus bore, took away upon his own self, all of yours and mine's physical diseases and sicknesses and infirmities. Remember that. That is the basis for healing. When we pray for the sick, that is the basis. And it's good that we understand this properly and we meditate on this, that Jesus Christ has born because we live in a fallen world and there is sickness and there is disease and there's things that happen all around us and they touch our bodies also. We are not immune to that People, there's a flu going around, and, and many people, they kind of welcome the flu. They say, oh, flu season here. It's, you know, my old friend, Mr. Flu, is back, you know. And people people have that attitude. And and sometimes I say, how are you doing, brother? Oh, don't touch me, because why? He say, I got something it will catch you. I said, no, I've got something that will catch you. I said, that's, well, you know, because that, you know. So, but the thing is that we have to remember that, that, Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, there's sickness. Yes, there's disease. And maybe you had... You know, your grandfather, your father died of a certain disease and you lived in that fear all your life. Now it's your turn. Your brothers have died of the same disease. Now it's your turn. No, it's not your turn. Because whatever the devil could put upon your body, Jesus Christ has already intercepted it. And he has borne it upon the cross on his own body and with his stripes you are healed. And that is a truth we have to meditate on. We have to hammer it in, and hammer it in, and hammer it in, and keep on hammering it in until it becomes a part of my DNA. This understanding that, yes, I live in a fallen world. Yes, there are diseases in in society around me people around me and in my family but Jesus Christ has borne every curse and he became a curse for me he bore all my sicknesses he carried all my diseases and with his stripes I have been healed that is what the Bible declares that is what I believe and that is what I speak and that is what I stand on amen So we, you know, these are, that's why the cross of Jesus was glorious. Then the fifth thing. So the first thing was the judgment of the world. Upon When Jesus was on the cross, the world was judged for its sins. Secondly, when Jesus was on the cross, the devil was defeated. Thirdly, when Jesus was on the cross, he took away the law of Moses. Fourthly, when Jesus was on the cross, he bore our diseases and carried our pains. Fifth when Jesus is on the cross and this is wonderful because of the first four he says when I be lifted up I shall draw all men unto me oh hallelujah you know we live in an age when everything has to be so intellectual it has to make sense but when you talk about the cross when you talk about the cross the cross of Jesus to the Jews it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that is the intellectual. It is an offense. They don't understand. But there's something about the cross of Jesus. When you, and the, because it has its own drawing and pulling power. You read in the Bible, you know, the, the Philippian jailer, when they, when they preached the gospel to him, his first thing was, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? When Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he preached the gospel, they said they were cut in their hearts. They said, "What must we must we do to be saved?" When I received Jesus for the first time in my heart, in my life, I heard about Jesus, and in five minutes, I felt like I don't know. I, there was something that got a hold of me. If people ask me, "Did you ever study these books?" And what made you choose? Uh, choose Christianity over Islam. I said, I never studied anything. I didn't know anything. But when this man started talking about Jesus, it felt like something got a hold of my heart and I felt this is what I've been waiting for all my life and I can't make sense of it. But that is when, when the crucified Christ is lifted up, when the crucified Christ is exalted, he exerts his drawing power over sinners and everybody comes to Jesus because that is the power of the Holy spirit that works in the hearts of men when we preach the gospel Amen. Amen. and that's the thing you know these days people want to uh, they want to preach a seeker friendly gospel they don't want a, they call it a butcher shop gospel. They want to talk about the cross and, you know, a bloody cross and someone being whipped and covered in blood and beaten up. And they don't want here, they want a sanitized, you know, a Jesus, a very sterile and sanitized Jesus, the, you know, the good guy Jesus. And you come to Jesus and, you know, heaven wouldn't be heaven without you, and you as if you're doing Jesus a favor by coming to the altar, you know. And coming and then giving people an intellectual reason why they should come to Jesus. People don't get saved that way. People don't last that way. And they'll come to church, they'll keep coming as long as you entertain them. Then when you stop entertaining them, they'll leave. But if you want people to have a red horse, red-hot, blood-washed salvation experience, you preach the cross to them. Because that's when you preach the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. And when Jesus draws people unto himself, they will never go away because that's when lives are changed. That's why we preach Christ crucified. That's the greatest thing about the cross. That 2,000 years from now, the cross still has that Drawing power. Hallelujah. People are still coming to him, whether they're educated, whether they're illiterate, or whether they're Americans, or whatever they are, whichever nation they are, when people hear about the crucified Jesus, and they say, I don't know, but something happens to me. Whenever you talk about Jesus, something gets a hold of me. I want to be saved. Can you explain it? I can't. But that's just the way it is. That's the way it means. It's meant to be. When I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That's why, church, we must always lift up Jesus. We must always exalt Jesus. We must build everything around the theme of the cross of the blood of Jesus Christ. We should never depart from these things. Amen. Now, let me wrap this up. I will let you go in a few minutes. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Okay? In the first chapter. But I want to give you the background to these words. Paul, when he went on his mission journeys, the first missionary journey, his missionary journeys, when he stepped on European soil for the first time, he came to Athens. That was the first big city in Europe that he came to. And in Athens, there's a place called Mars Hill. I've been there. I've stood on that place. It's actually... Well, you've seen the pictures of the Acropolis in Athens. Have you seen the, the the Parthenon and the Acropolis? Just down the hill from there, you have Mars Hill. And, and there's a little plaque there, bronze plaque. This is Mars Hill. This is where the Apostle Paul first preached the gospel in Europe. And you get up on that hill, and you see this field, and then you see, and if you have a guide, good guide, he will tell you. He says, that is where Paul debated with the philosophers, and that's where a temple stood, you know. This, that's where Paul was. Now, Greece was known for its... Uh, Uh, for his philosophy, wisdom, philosophy. All the philosophers, the great philosophers were Greek. And Paul was very educated. Paul could match minds. He could discuss with the best of them. Paul was not a dummy. I mean, he could talk philosophy. So when he came to Athens, he decided to engage them and bring the gospel to them. In the context of Greek philosophy so he sat with the philosophers and he debated with them and he discussed with them and they went back and forth and he did this for many many days but there was hardly any result very little fruit that is why although Athens was the biggest city in Greece you don't see any letter to the church in Athens have you thought of that there's no letter to the church in Athens although he was in Athens and preached But from Athens, he went to the next largest city, the city of Corinth. And when he came to Corinth, he realized the mistake he had made in Athens. So when he came to Corinth, he said, No, I'm not going to do this philosophy thing anymore, but I'm going to preach Christ crucified. And when he preached Christ crucified, He had miracles and people got saved and there was a thriving church there and that's why to the church in Corinth he wrote not one but he wrote two epistles which are two of the major epistles in the New Testament. So it is with this background what he had done in Athens and then what he had done in Corinth that he writes these words and I want you to listen to them. I've chosen a couple of verses from the 1 Corinthians chapter 1, then a couple of verses from chapter 2. It says, for the preaching of the cross, from verses 18 to 24, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew no God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. If you understand the background, then you will understand the weight of these words. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in the second chapter, verses 1 to 5 and I brethren when I came to you came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing man's uh, words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hallelujah. He had been to Athens, and he could speak wisdom, and he could debate them, and he did that. But he had no fruit. He came to Corinth. He changed tactics and reverted back to the preaching of Christ crucified. And there he had their fruit. Amen. And later on, the last verse I want to read to you is Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. The cross became everything for him. The cross became everything for him it became his life it became his message and he says I don't glory in anything else except the cross and through the cross the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world and now there's many things to say to be said about this but I want to leave you with one thought that the cross also brings separation One of my my personal biggest, personally speaking, my biggest concern is that the church today, and I'm not speaking about you, I'm speaking generally speaking, is not crucified to the world and the world is not crucified to the church. Because we are too influenced by the world. And when we are influenced by the world, we cannot change the world. That's why we call God our father. But it is separation that gives us the right to call God our father. He said, come out from among them, then I will be your father. See, just because I'm saved doesn't give me the right to call God my father. But he said, come out from among them, then I will be your father and you'll be my son's. A prerequisite to sonship in the house of God. To walk as sons in this world. To walk as heirs in this world. Heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. is separation from the world. To be in the world and not be of this world. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think all of us should should sit down and. In our own lives it means different things for each one of us it's not the same it's not a one-size-fit-all it's different for each one of us what does it mean to me is there too much of a spirit of worldliness in my life how deep does my separation run I think these are things we have to really stop and think and we should remember That without separation, we are sons legally, but vitally in a dynamic sense. We are not really sons. What gives us the right to say, God is my father, and I am his son, and I am an heir of God, and walk in the power of sonship, is separation from the world. To be able to say, I glory only in the Christ in the cross of Jesus because through the cross I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Hallelujah. I'm crucified I'm dead to the world as far as the world is concerned there's nothing in the world that attracts me that holds me. And there's nothing in me I give I keep nothing in my life that the world can hold on to I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me now I want you to ponder that when you go home tonight what does it mean for me what does it mean for you I made my decision years ago and so I learned one thing to keep my life not only from sin but from the spirit of worldliness we want the spirit of faith We don't want the spirit of worldliness. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. But thank God for the power of the cross. Oh, hallelujah. Our sins are forgiven, our diseases are healed. The devil is under our feet. That's the power of the cross, beloved, in your life. That's wonderful. Everything you and I could ever need, it's supplied to us through the cross. Thank you, Jesus. And that is why I I want to build my life around the theme of the cross. At the cross, we are forgiven. We are healed. We are delivered. We have victory. We are undefeatable. We are invincible. Hallelujah. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching.